Good morning, church. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to just start by reading a portion of our text, and then we'll read the rest of it as we get moving. Starting in verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse 6, the first part of verse 6. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. So competency matters. I heard a story about a man several years ago who was completing a job application for project management at a massive uh, chemical plant in South Louisiana. When he was asked to describe some of his best skills and best attributes, he wrote on the written application, I pay careful attention to details. And when he was called in for the interview, he was informed that he, in fact, does not pay careful attention to details because he spelled details, details, which is kind of ironic, right? It's not just the misspelling. And the issue is, you know, think about it, in the world of chemical plants, in the world of chemical formulas, changing one letter can be explosive. <laughs> changing one letter can be deadly. So think about, I went and looked this up. I don't have, like, science in my head. The formulas, N-A-C-L, and N-A-C-N, it's only off by one letter, but the first one is salt. You could put it on your popcorn and it's great. The second one is cyanide. You shouldn't put it on your popcorn, right? You change one letter and there's a world of difference. Competency matters. And here's what Paul says. You see it there again in verse six. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Now let's just say this and get this out of the way. Paul's role as a minister of the new covenant was unique. He was an apostle. So the apostles, uh, they, they were the scaffolding on the edifice of the church, right? And once the edifice stands up, the scaffolding comes down. There was a unique role that the apostles had. I mean, Paul wrote scripture for us. These are no, these, this is a don't try this at home type of situation, right? The, the apostles had a unique role as ministers of the new covenant in the first century, but and matter of fact, a big part of the reason that Paul writes this letter, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, where Paul writes to the church of Corinth, a big part of his reason for writing these letters is to defend his apostleship, to say, hey, I need you guys to receive. I've bled for you. Here's the stripes on my back. Here are the marks of my apostleship. And he showed them the signs of his own suffering on their behalf so that their faith might grow. And so he's showing throughout 2 Corinthians the signs of his apostleship. But don't miss this. I mean, having bracketed that and made some of those caveats, the New Testament, though it's written by the apostles, is written for the church. It is written to the priesthood of all believers. It is written to all, think about it this way. We just walked through a portion of the book of Acts, a big chunk of the book of Acts. And guess who preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts? A non-apostle, a non-elder, a deacon named Stephen. Longest sermon, proclaims Jesus to great effect. Paul, if you read in his other letters, Paul calls Christians, not just apostles, he calls Christians to proclaim the gospel. He calls Christians uh, to, to be wise toward outsiders, as we looked at last week and when Dennis was preaching from Colossians chapter 4, to be wise toward outsiders and makes the most of every opportunity to speak for Jesus. Peter talked about Christians 
average Christians, you and me, speaking for Jesus. He said, proclaim, you, proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Every Sunday when we leave here, what do we do? We recite the Great Commission where Jesus called all of us to go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that he's ever commanded us. So really, in a way, you just think about it. Our regular practice as a church is a, has a built-in mini commissioning service every Sunday. The last thing you hear is Jesus saying, go get them. Go make disciples. Proclaim this gospel. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is not just about what the apostles did then and there. It's for us. It's an all skate. It's inviting us into the ministry of the gospel to make Jesus known. So three points for us to consider along the way. And the first is this. Consider the field of gospel ministry. Look around. The field of gospel ministry, look around. So a few weeks ago when we were in the book of Acts, we happened to be in Acts chapter 18 where Paul walks in for the very first time on his missionary journey, he walks into the city of Corinth to begin the thing that would start this whole relationship between him and Corinth. We saw that in Acts 18, Paul arrives, he arrives alone. He arrives with much fear and weakness and trembling. He meets Aquila and Priscilla right there in the first couple of verses. They say, we've got a place for you to stay. What do you do for a living? We have a leather-making company. He says, I make leather, I make tents. They said, come, you work for us. You can have a room in the house and you can have a job at the office, right? And so then Paul goes from there. He's preaching during the day. People believe, people get baptized. Corinthians start to follow Jesus. A congregation forms that would become the church at Corinth. And so then Acts 18 told us that Paul stays there. After all these people become followers of Jesus, Paul stays there for a year and a half and he teaches them. And then years later, when Paul writes his first letter to this church called 1 Corinthians, here's how he describes, notice this, here's how he describes what happened. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you, Corinthians, believed. And each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so the time that Paul spent back there in Acts 18 that we looked at, the time that Paul spent evangelizing and talking about Jesus, Paul says it's like, basically it's like work in a field. It's like, it's like the work of a farmer. There's planting that's necessary. There's watering that's necessary. There are the elements. We pray for the elements, right, to, to take place where the rain falls on, on the dry ground and upsprings a harvest. That, Paul says that's kind of like what gospel ministry is. And everybody's got their different and distinctive role. Here, here's the point if you're taking notes in your, in your outline. The call to live sent means laboring so the people around you might know Jesus. The Apostle John, he writes about these issues and he, he says at the end of his book, he says, I wrote all these things so that you may believe on the name of Jesus Christ. John chapter 17 says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Paul would then use this phrase, coming to know Christ, as a phrase. That's kind of a, a catch-all for conversion. You, Thessalonians, came to know Christ. You, Ephesians, came to know Christ in this way. You learned Christ in this way. So the knowledge of Christ begins with evangelism. As we tell people what God has done in Christ to save sinners. 
That's what we saw Paul doing in Acts chapter 18. Paul comes to Corinth and it says, Luke says, he testified that Jesus is the Messiah. What does that mean? That means Paul told everybody who was close enough to hear him and he lifted up his voice pretty loud and he, and he said, Jesus is the king. He's the, he's the one the world's been waiting for. He's the promised one. He came to save. He is the king over all the kings. He's the Lord over all the lords. This king came into the world. We know Paul's gospel. This king came into the world in the form of a servant. And he came to die on the cross for our sins. And he became the lamb of God. The only way to save a world that has rebelled against God, and that is the world we live in, that is our own lives, apart from the grace of God. We've turned our back on God, and in our sin, we deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. The only way to get us off the hook for punishment is for Jesus to come and willingly die in my place. Condemned, he stood, and he hangs between earth and heaven suspended there and he absorbs the infinite blast of God's justice against your sin and my sin in himself in six hours, drowns it on the cross. That's why we sing the way we do on Sunday morning. This is a gospel, this is the gospel message. And when Jesus cried out to telestai, that, that one word that just means it is finished, when he cried out it is finished from the cross, what he meant is the just sentence of a holy God against unholy people has been satisfied by him. He took our sin upon himself. That's, that's why the church has been singing for a couple hundred years now these words, my sin, oh the bliss, you know this one, of, his, of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Paul, if you will, sang that same gospel in the streets of Corinth and wonder of wonders, pagan Corinthians started joining in. They started singing it too, they started marching toward the waters of baptism and taking this new name of Jesus Christ. It, it, it says Paul stayed there, Acts chapter 18 says, Paul stayed there for a year and a half. And that's, that begs the question why, right? So we talked about how knowing Christ begins with evangelism. Well, continuing in the knowledge of Christ and deepening in the knowledge of Christ means discipleship. So it continues in discipleship as we help one another to faithfully Follow Jesus, that's what discipleship means, faithfully following Jesus. And discipling other people means helping other people faithfully follow Jesus. That's basically what that means. So you think about it. Field work, which Paul said, that's, that's kind of what we do. We plant, we water. Field work doesn't stop when something starts to grow. <laughs> Paul says, I planted and then something started growing and so we needed Apollos to start watering that new something, that young sapling, that young field that's beginning to spring up with life. Apollos started watering it. So evangelism and discipleship, we're in this Live Sent series and we're talking about evangelism and discipleship, right? Those two are interconnected. Think about it. So the Great Commission, which we recite every Sunday, go make disciples, that's evangelism, and then he goes on to say, baptizing them, those disciples that were just made, the converts, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. So one third of the Great Commission is teaching new believers. The Great Commission is teaching 
new believers. So Christ followers are made through evangelism and Christ followers are matured through discipleship. The two are interrelated. We can't do one and leave off the other. And in these things, competency matters. So you think about this for your own life. Do you know how to plant gospel seeds? Do you have a clear understanding of the message of the gospel? Clear enough for the person in front of you to understand it without us encumbering it with a ton of Christianese. Can they understand what the message is? Can we get that across to them? Do we know how to plant gospel seeds? And do we know how to water them when something starts growing? Do we know both of those aspects of ministry? And that's why, friends, just to back away for just a moment, kind of as an aside, that's why we want to be a church that studies the Bible. God knows how to win a person to himself, and God knows how to build a believer. And he gives it to us in his word. We don't have to make this up. We don't have to be innovative. We go and we look at his word in context, verse by verse. We just studied Acts. We'll be studying Matthew in the season of Advent. We'll be studying the book of James in the spring. This, in God's word, this is where God makes us competent. Competent, faithful gospel ministers. This is where we get equipped for that. So the field of gospel ministry, look around, and second, the power of gospel ministry, treasure grace. Notice the humility Paul has. I hope you still got your Bible open. Verse five, he says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves. So just stop there and we learn something. Here we see that self-confident evangelism is an oxymoron. Self-confident evangelism is an oxymoron. So an oxymoron is a contradiction in terms. Here are a few uh, classic examples. Exact estimate. <laughs> contradiction in terms. Jumbo shrimp. <laughs> Found missing. Right? There, there's a lot of things. You can think about these two words sit next to each other and they kind of mean the opposite of one another and yet they're put together in a way that makes your mind go nuts, right? Self-confident evangelism belongs right there with exact estimate and jumbo shrimp and found missing. Self-confident evangelism is a contradiction in terms. For Paul, gospel competency begins by confessing what we can't do. It's not that we're competent in and of ourselves to pull anything off, right? That is, now we're at ground zero of live sent. Ground zero of live sent is, I don't have confidence in my own abilities or gifts to move the needle in somebody's life. I can't pull that off. That is way above my pay grade. And that means what? That means now we're going to start praying. <laughs> now we're going to start leaning and trusting in God. For Paul, new covenant ministry is fixated on what God does by his grace through his spirit despite our weakness. Let me say that again. For Paul, new covenant ministry is fixated on what God does by his grace through his spirit despite our weakness. And just notice, I'm going to read to us the rest of the passage, but notice as I'm reading it the contrast between the condemnation-producing ministry of the law in the Old Testament and the life-changing ministry of the Spirit in the New Covenant. Verse six, follow along with me. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, he's talking about the old covenant law, the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters on stones, if that came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Verse 12, since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, so here's another contrast, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces are looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. So just notice what he's happening there. Just unpack it for just a second. So he contrasts the most glorious ministry in the Old Testament, that of Moses, with everyday ministry in the new covenant. Everyday ministry now that God's people have his spirit. You think about Moses. Moses was wrapped in glory. Moses was, he comes down from Mount Sinai and he has a slab of rock with the fingerprint of God on it. Nobody's seen God's handwriting except that day. God's handwriting was on the stone. Moses is carrying that rock, right? Moses' face is shining. He's been on Death Mountain, basically, this mountain that shakes every time God speaks. The whole thing goes up in fire and shakes, and the people are terrified by what's going on in the mountain. Moses is at ground zero. Moses is right there. Moses, not only that, Moses carries a death stick everywhere he goes, and he wields it to stunning effect. He points it in the direction, he tips cows, he opens up seas, right? A crazy, he buries the Egyptian army underwater with that thing. The 10 plagues, Moses is, is scary. Moses has been scary places and he's come back with scary stories. And they're, they're stories that are scary because they're filled with the glory of the holiness of God. Moses saw some serious glory when, uh, by contrast, when I tell people that I babysat the Jonas brothers, uh, they look at me as though my life has new meaning. Um, like I've seen glory. There's a massive contrast, right? Moses unleashes hailstorms. I saw Nick Jonas spit up. These are not the same. This is, this is definitely massive contrast, right? Paul, he's setting up these huge contrasts, right? So, so pick them up. Two covenants, two effects, and two phases. Two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. Two effects, the letter killed and the spirit gives life. Two faces, the face of Moses under the veil, the face of Jesus under the veil. And in the old covenant, there was this veil This is what Paul is saying. There was this veil to keep them from seeing God's glory in the face of Moses because seeing it would hurt the people. 
By way of absolute contrast, in the new covenant, the veil is lifted to enable us to see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ because seeing it transforms us. From one degree of glory to another, the the glory that's reflected from the face of Jesus Christ is actually making us like him. It's crazy. Transformation, inside out transformation. It's not the law. The law could not pull that off. Why does Paul refer to you see this, these uh, words that he uses in verse seven. He refers to the giving of the law as a ministry of death and in verse nine, a ministry of condemnation. He's not saying that the law of God was intrinsically bad. Why? Because if you've read Romans, Paul says just the opposite. The law of God is holy and good. The problem is God's law didn't change the hearts of the people. All the law did in the Old Testament was expose the hearts of the people. It exposed the contrast between the holiness of God and the people's sin. It's like those, um, those mirrors. My wife's broke a little while ago, and so we got a new one. Those, those mirrors that magnify your face like 50 times. Um, you combine the brightness of it. You know, it's like they've harnessed the power of the sun Uh, And then you add to that the crazy magnification and what you have is basically a ministry of condemnation. It's, it's, like, it's like the eye of Sauron in a box, right? It's nothing escapes its all-seeing eye. It sees everything it finds. It exposes every flaw. You thought the flaw was small? It's very big. The, the, the flaw is actually quite large, right? And just like that mirror... The law reveals every flaw and offers no help. (laughs) Israel stood in front of the law of God and it was nothing more than a crushing revelation of Israel's sins and faults and flaws. An 18th century Scottish preacher contrasted the effects of the old covenant and the new covenant in this little couplet and it reads this way. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Understand what Paul is saying here. He's clarifying something that we needed to know. The law didn't lift a finger to change people's lives. It's still true, by the way. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true now. The law doesn't lift a finger to change people's lives. There still isn't a command in the entire Bible that offers to help you obey it. It stands there and it commands and it points at every place in your life where you're not fulfilling the command. And that's its job. That's where its job ends. Paul says the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It showed us we're never gonna pull this off in and of ourselves. We're gonna need a savior. That's why Paul says the letter in and of itself, devoid of the internal work of the spirit, kills The letter kills. Again, unlike the fading glory of the old covenant, Paul says this, this glory of the new covenant is is not fading, it's ever increasing, ever intensifying. It progresses from one degree of glory, verse 18, to another. It's further up and further in, transformation from the inside out. What's the point? What's that have to do with us living sent? It means this, this week when you enter the field, you don't need to muster up some inner awesome. That's not the job. Enter the field with this as your walkout music. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by God's spirit. 
That's where the power is. Not that we're competent. Paul says, in and of ourselves, we can't do anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Enter the field that way. Paul says, I don't enter the field confident in my own gospel competency. I came to Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And what I did was I walked through the streets and I threw seeds and prayed and the spirit turned a dry ground into a harvest. They asked the question to Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation. Once it was all said and done and this thing was just spreading like wildfire throughout Europe. And they said, how does this, how did this happen? No one saw this coming. What did you do to make this happen? And Luther's response is famous. He said this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, the word did everything. Sounds a lot like what Paul would say when he says, we're not sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. This change comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That's the change agent. We point people, this week, we point people to the treasure of God's grace and it's his work to pull the veil off, to reveal the glory that's there. Can I ask you for your, your personal Christian story? Do you remember when the veil was pulled back? Maybe it was one dramatic day and it all happened right then. Maybe it, was, it felt like a series of progressive unveilings. I could walk into certain rooms and I could point you to places where the veil was coming off and I was seeing the glory of Jesus and it was transforming me and it was drawing me to him, to worship him. Do you remember that day for your own life? Our prayer is every Sunday when we open God's word that it's happening in this room. That as we look at the glory of Jesus which shines out of every page of the Bible that that the Holy Spirit's pulling back veils. Maybe this morning, Maybe the spirit is pulling back a veil. And you came in perhaps thinking, I already know Jesus. And maybe you're discovering in this very moment that as we talk about the glories of his grace and the new covenant versus the old covenant, the life and the freedom that's found in Jesus Christ, maybe the spirit's saying, today's your day. Repent and believe, friend. Put your trust in the one hope of the world. There is no other hope coming. He's already come. He lived, he died, he rose again. Trust in him. Two words, turn and trust. Turn from self-rule, turn from sin, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus. If that's a decision you make this morning or any morning, here's the deal. Come find us and tell us. Tell somebody around you. This is something that God is doing. I saw stuff I didn't see before and I want to respond, right? Let us talk to you about how faith grows because evangelism needs to lead to discipleship. And you put your trust in Jesus and you repent of your sins and the wisdom of that decision will prove itself a thousand times over until the day you die. I've, um, I've paid visits to friends who are now with Jesus. 
and who told me in our final conversation together, Matt, I'm not afraid. I don't care how much money you have. You can't buy fearless. I don't care how much money you have. You can't buy hope. Hope that endures through trials, hope that endures through suffering, that's not, there's not an app for that. Paul went to Corinth and he walks in and he says, I'll tell you where the treasure is and the spirit lifted veils. (laughs) What if we tried some of that this week as gospel ministers and we said, friend, I wanna tell you where the treasure is and maybe the spirit starts pulling back veils. Wouldn't that be awesome? Understand the call to live sent is fueled by glory, not by guilt. Guilt is bad fuel. Right? It, might, it might lead you to avoid doing some bad things and it might lead you to do some good things, but God is not glorified by pharisaical obedience. God is glorified by obedience that springs from a heart that treasures grace, and that's the new covenant's fastball. It teaches you to treasure grace. The field of gospel ministry, look around, the power of gospel ministry, treasure grace, and the sound of gospel ministry, God is able. God is able. I I cannot imagine how defeated Old Testament ministers must have felt at every turn because basically even when they were called, and go read Isaiah's call, God tells Isaiah on day one, go and tell them this, they're gonna hear it and they're gonna harden their hearts. That's basically the promise. Go and you'll be utterly ineffectual. Go tell them this news. I'm going to put a word in your ear. You're going to say it and they're not going to respond. I'm just telling you this is how it's going to shake out. Go show them this. They'll see it and they'll harden their hearts. And then Ezekiel comes up. Jeremiah comes up in the Old Testament and they're starting to say, it's not always going to be this way. God's telling us it's not always going to be this way. A day is coming, Ezekiel said and Jeremiah said, where God is going to take away the stony, unresponsive heart of people and give them a heart that's responsive, a soft heart to obey. He's going to write the laws not on tablets of stone from from shaking fire mountain, right? He's going to write it on tablets of the heart. He's going to etch it on the inside. He's going to put his spirit in them. He's going to bid them fly and give them wings, That's what Ezekiel and Jeremiah were prophesying. Understand this morning, as you head out into the week and you enter the field, whatever that field looks like, the change agent in your home, in your small group, in your workplace, your college dorm, your neighborhood, is the Holy Spirit. Don't misplace your confidence. This is so freeing. This is so freeing that the early... uh, 20th century preacher Vance Havner, he read 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where where God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. And this liberated Vance Havner to the point where he said this, I realized then that the Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. (laughs) I love Paul's words there in verse 12. Since we have such hope, we are very bold, or we act with great boldness. Reminded me of an experience I had uh, several years ago when I heard Wayne Grudem, who's an author that I love and have benefited from immensely over the years, and he's a a gifted 
uh, Christian scholar, undergrad from Harvard, PhD from Cambridge, so a, a gifted guy. And when I first heard Dr. Grudem speak in a live setting, it was a conference about 20 years ago, but what struck me as I listened to him speak the very first time I heard him was there was a simplicity of faith that was so evident through his message that night. And so he was giving a talk about cultural shifts that are going on in our world and these cultural shifts that threaten the truth of the gospel and threaten Christianity. And he wasn't using notes as he spoke and so he finished up the sermon, something funny happened, he ends his talk, he walks off the stage, everybody thanks him, the main MC and main speaker comes up to take over from there. Conference host is saying some things and Wayne Grudem on the front row, he raises his hand and he asks the MC if he can come back up and say one more thing. And so the MC made some kind of playful comments and said, yeah, come on back up. And Wayne Grudem comes back up and he grabs the microphone and he says, um, I should have used notes because I forgot the last point in my message. <laughs> and he proceeded to this, this huge smile spread across his face and he started to talk about the triumphant power of God in the gospel. And he just got louder and his face got brighter and brighter and brighter and he, he just was pumping his fist and just saying, God is able. Nothing can stop him. His gospel will move to the ends of the earth. God will win. His purposes will triumph in the world. And I thought of Dr. Grudem this week when I read Paul's words, since we have such certain hope, we are very bold. We act with great boldness. So try this on for size. Through the redemptive work of Jesus and the renewing power of the Spirit, God is going to make all things new. The accomplishment of the Great Commission is not a hypothesis. It doesn't have a question mark hanging in midair over whether or not it's going to happen. So the call to live sent is a call to be hope agents in a hopeless world. That's what we're talking about through this whole series being hope agents in a hopeless world. Our church sang a song when I was growing up. They just basically took this verse right out of the Bible and set it to music. It's kind of a cheesy sounding melody, but at the time I loved it. But you can't improve on the text because here's what it said. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. That's the power of the gospel. It pulls stuff down. Stuff that stood up in God's way, it pulls it down. This is no anemic gospel, friends. This is charged with saving power. We have it on good authority that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like water covers the sea. Veils will be removed. Christ will be seen in his glory. Lives will be changed. That's the outcome. That's the work we get the privilege of being a part of. So, a couple things I want to share with us on our way out. Brook Hills, some applications. Number one, enter the field. So we're in this church-wide emphasis. It's called Too Strong. Too Strong because it's got two years going and two different emphases. So year one was about growing strong as a church. We spent all year talking about that theme. Year two, which we're in now, having just begun, is about going strong to our community. So year two is about reaching out, right? So these several weeks, we're gonna be thinking a lot about what does it mean for us to live sent? And it means this, if nothing else, it means believing that where you end up this week, God sent you. 
It's not like everything you do the rest of the week doesn't matter until you get here on Sunday. Every place you go, you were sent. Your house isn't where it's located by accident. Your neighbors aren't your neighbors by accident. The person in the cubicle next to you, the person in the cafeteria next to you in 10th grade, that person, you've been sent there. Wouldn't it change our vision and our approach if we saw God's providence in the places we already are? We don't need to find some new field. We're already standing in them. Look around. Two, mark your progress. So I'm going to talk about this, the two-strong journal. Um, so on your way out, you will see these available on tables. And I want to invite, I want to invite you to, to grab one. If you would use it, grab one. If you're not going to use it for recording and thinking about and meditating on how God would use you in the world to evangelize and share your hope with other people, then, then don't grab one. But if you will, grab one of these. Uh, so how many of you journal? Okay, so a number of you journal, you already know the value of writing things down, keeping things in front of you. It has a way of doing that, right? So I wanna invite you, once you get one of these, to write on one of the pages, write two times two, two by two. And here's, here's the idea. I want you to think about two names and two spheres. You can add more later on. You can add five, 10 names and five different spheres. But let's just start by saying two names and two spheres. Pray and think and identify two names of people you know who you want to be more bold in telling them the hope that you have in Jesus. Might be a member of your extended family, might be a friend, might be a coworker, might be a neighbor. You want to tell them that Jesus loves them. You want to tell them the good news. We'll talk more about what that looks like next week. So two names, two spheres. So two areas, two places where you frequent, places where you go, where you want to be particularly intentional. Maybe it's your neighborhood, maybe it's your workplace, your school, the gym, the cycling group, whatever context it is, you want to think, these two places, I want to be extra intentional. I just want to encourage you, fill this journal. Fill it with prayers. Fill it with things that you want God to do in your life as you share the gospel. Fill it with prayers for people, the names of the people that you've already uh, listed in your two by two approach. Fill it with scripture verses that motivate you to share the gospel, that help you treasure grace so that it comes flowing out of you. Scripture verses that remind you of this calling. Fill it with notes from, from sermons, maybe something that stood out to you. So I'm going to write, I haven't had a chance to do it yet, but now that we're in town and now that I've listened to Dennis's message from last week, I'm going to write in here the doors. I'm going to write in here the keys that he had at the end of the message. I thought that was so helpful. I'm going to write that in this journal. Fill it with notes from spiritual conversations that you've had with people. Even if it did, didn't go well, even if it went over like a lead balloon, write it and record it. This is you being intentional. This is you stepping out in faith. And then I want to try, not maybe we'll do it every week, but I want to give you a writing prompt on a regular basis. So here's this week's writing prompt. You can come back and listen to it later. Here's a writing prompt. This week, I want to tell someone new about God's faithfulness in my life. Three possible stories are, and then just put a brief summary, number one, brief summary, number two, brief summary, number three. I'll say that again. This week, I wanna tell someone new about God's faithfulness in my life. Three possible stories I could share are one, two, and three. Let's use this. And then third, pray for fruit. I love what Dennis said last week about a culture 
of praying for one another's evangelistic efforts. We have started that as a staff. Now we're praying in, in year two, we're praying every Wednesday morning and most of the time that we spend praying is praying about our evangelistic efforts. That we would be a light. That we would adorn the gospel by the way we live and that we would speak the hope that we have. Wouldn't it be amazing if small groups started picking up on this, talking about this together, things that we're writing in our journals, things that we're praying, our two by two names and so forth. Prayer Prayer is a perfect way to remind ourselves that it's our job to be faithful, to plant and water, but it's God's job to make it grow. 